0: so we're on page eight big word inerrancy of scripture that means the bible is without error yesterday cnn fired three reporters but i'd like to guess why fake news for reporting things that were false they fired them now took a lot of courage for CNN to do that because fake news has now become very popular to do is to write things that aren't exactly true in order to get better readership or better viewership to get people to watch. And one of the accusations that comes about Christianity and about the Bible is basically it's fake news, that it's some grand made up group of stories that go together to capture the minds of people so that they can be controlled by people in authority. If you've never heard that before, you will. What I want you to see tonight is the inerrancy of the Scripture or that the Bible is without error, that it can be trusted. Or to say it this way, the Bible is not fake news. The Bible calls itself good news. It is the gospel. So I'd ask yourself this question as we get started. We sing, death was arrested and my life began. How do we know that? How do we know the truth of that song? It's a very simple answer. How do you know it? It's in the Bible. So here's the ultimate question then. Can you trust that? Is it trustworthy then to stake your life on it? So if it's trustworthy, it's got to be presented in a trustworthy way. So here's my first question. How did the Bible come to be? There's just a couple of basic things I want to nail down for you so that we we dispel some of the wrong ideas that could be in your mind or some of these wrong things people are going to say to you about the Bible. So how did the Bible come to be? Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 and 8. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and to the angel of the church at Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So question, how did that come to be? It's, it, the answer is in the text. What did God say? I'm going to let you use your brain for a minute. To the angel... The church at Ephesus, what? Right. All right. To the angel of the church at Smyrna, what? All right. Let me help you. What's going on here? Siri. Text. Jordan. And then what follows? You say what you want. What's that called? You know what that's called? It's called dictation. You're you're saying what is to be written. So this is what happened right here in Revelation. God is dictating to the person as to what is to be written here. Now question, is all of the Bible dictation? No. And this is where people get confused. All of it is not dictation. Part of it is. All of it is not. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. I invite, why don't you, you turn there? To that one. Let's look, let's look at Hebrews 1 1 because I, I, I want to go to verse 2 as well. Hebrews 1 1. <clears throat> long ago, at many times and in many ways. All right, let's just stop right there. How long did it take? for the entire Bible to be written. You may know. So of you're mumbling. Give it a shot. I'm not going to ridicule you. We want to, we want to arrive at the right answer here. Is there historical. What? 4,000 years? Well, it covers a span of that. It didn't take that long for it to be written, but that's a good. It took 1,600 years. So somebody didn't just sit down and write it. So over a course of 1,600 years, how many authors are involved? 40. 40 different authors over the course of 1,600 years. And Hebrews just sums it up this way. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways. So there are multiple ways in which the Scripture has come to be. So you've all had an English class, right? If I say genre of writing, what do I mean? Type of writing. So give me some types. What are some types of writing? Narrative, poetry, step outside of your English class. What are some other ways people would write? All right, it's fiction. That's still Letters. some form of narrative. Letters, okay. Songs, okay. That's still, that's the poetry, songs, okay. History is a form of writing or reporting. All right, so the Bible contains all those things. It contains narrative or stories. It, 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 contains, it contains history. It contains poetry. So look here. I, I got Hebrews open. You do too, right? Why is this indented like this right here? Anybody know? It's doing two things. Two things right here. Number one, it's telling you it's quoting from the Old Testament. Number two, when you get right here, this right here, what does that look like? Just just looking at it. Having been in an English class, what does that look like? What kind of writing? A what? A poem. A poem. That's what it is. You need to clue your brain in. So you're you're not reading his history here. You're not reading a story. When you look right here, you're reading poetry. And the Bible has all those different genres. So many times, in many ways, what's next? God spoke. God spoke to our Father by the prophets. So God is speaking through these multiple ways over multiple times through the prophets, through through those whom he inspired to write and to communicate his words. Now, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, back in the book, page 8. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. All right, so several things Luke tells you he's doing there. What form is his writing, the Gospel of Luke? What form is it? It's in the very first sentence. It's a narrative. That means he's writing it in the form of a story, okay? So it is a narrative. What is it based off of? How does he get his information to write this narrative? Eyewitness accounts. And if you read this closely, he's, he is being meticulous about this. It took him a long time to arrive at what he writes and what he shares with you. What is Luke's profession? Does anybody know? He was a doctor. So that explains how meticulous. So you see this man's personality and his profession coming to bear on how he writes. He writes in a meticulous way. So it's eyewitnesses. And then he says ministers of the word, people who were communicating what had transpired. So this is a historical, detailed account based off of eyewitnesses. Now, this next part, if you look at page nine, I just want to answer this very quickly. Uh, I'll I'll talk more about this uh, tomorrow morning. Some of you are going to get this this question. So this is the way, basically, I heard it in college. there, There was this group of men who got together in a smoke-filled room and decided what was in the Bible and they did it to control the populace, not the masses of people. That's that's how they did it. So they, they were very cr- distinct in how they decided what was in the Bible and they kept things away from people and they were controlling people. That is not how the Bible came to be. It did not come to be by a group of men who got in a smoke-filled room and decided. Here are the criteria that 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 came about in the first two centuries, to determine what was in what is called the canon of Scripture. So like I said, 40 authors, multiple times, so how was it decided? These five principles were used. Number one, was the book authored or sanctioned or endorsed by an apostle or a prophet? Was the book authored or sanctioned by an apostle or a prophet? Number two, was the book widely circulated? I think the first one's pretty obvious. What is the opposite of widely circulated? Just use your brain here for a second. What's the opposite of that? It's obscure. Now listen to me. if, If you turn on the television tonight and it comes on the news that some scholar found a lost book of the Bible, it's bogus. There's not a lost book of the Bible. The books of the Bible that God intended us to have were widely circulated. And there are some of these little obscure books or letters that were out there that people try to defend there in the Bible. And one of the ways that they were shown not to be is that they were not widely circulated. Number three, was the book Christologically centered? That's a big word, Christologically centered. Now, let me just briefly explain this. It means it was more than a historical account of Jesus. So it's not just saying there was a Jesus who lived on the earth. Christological means it was also theological. So you just saying death was arrested and my life began. That was a theological song. You weren't just saying Jesus lived on the earth, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. You were were communicating something theological about that. What did Jesus accomplish when he did those things? What did he accomplish? What? What? Rested death. What did he accomplish for you? Your salvation. Okay? He accomplished salvation. He accomplished saving you. So Christological means that it's pointing to what Christ came to do and what he accomplished. Number four, was the book orthodox? That is, was it faithful to the teachings of the apostles? Uh, anybody ever read the Apocrypha? Anybody know what that is? Uh Nobody in this room knows what the Apocrypha is. Some of you do. All right, what is Apocrypha, JG? Yep, yeah, but what are they in? They're in the Catholic Bible. There's some weird stuff in the Apocrypha. So you just have to read it for a minute and go, this is not the teaching of the apostles. All right, number five. Did the book give internal evidence of its unique character as inspired and authoritative? Okay, what's the opposite of internal? External. So, so give me an example of somebody using external evidence to say they gave you a book of the Bible. Anybody know? Anybody have a Mormon friend? What, what, is, what do your Mormon friends read, do you know? The Book of Mormon, who wrote it? Joseph Smith, he had this dream. All right, what's Islam based off of? Not just the life of Muhammad. What happened to Muhammad? He got this dream. God appeared to him. He wrote this out. So that's external evidence. So they're claiming based off something that happened to them in private. Nobody else is around. So what, what the Bible was looking for was not just some guy saying, hey, I just wrote the book of the Bible. It was the internal evidence. So it's the video you just watched. This connectivity That's going throughout the entire Bible to say it's not just one guy who's got some different interpretation going on. There's a connectivity of internal evidence that that this is inspired and it's from God. All right. This is from a, a, a book called Thy Word is Truth. Rather, in all its parts, in its entirety, the Bible, if we are to accept its witness to itself, is utterly infallible. It is not only that each book given the name of Scripture is infallible, but more than that, the content of each such book is itself Scripture, the Word of God, written and hence infallible, free entirely from the errors which adhere to mere human compositions. I know that's a big sentence. All right, what's the word "infallible" mean? So, number one person, one person, raise your hand. What does it mean? It can't come here, man. Free book. It means. It means you don't want it you can give it back i'm impressed infallible means it's not just the bible's not have error it is incapable of error it cannot be false now it's, it's not just the bible claims this there are other people who would claim infallibility all right the bible is 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 not just without error it cannot have error second timothy 3 16 it says this about itself All scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Now, I'm not going to give you a lecture right now on this. A good, solid translation of the Bible is crucial. Not all English versions of the Bible are solid, good translations. Anybody tell me what language is the Bible originally written in? You're mumbling again. Say them loud. Hebrew. Hebrew. What else? Greek. Greek. And there's a brief section of some written in what language? Aramaic. Aramaic. So the original manuscripts are then what are translated into English for us. So you want somebody who's gone to that manuscript and then translated that to the English language or whatever language you're a native speaker of as clearly and as specifically as possible. Now, throughout the ages, people have gotten a hold of these translations and affected them. So there was a version of the scripture called the Revised Standard Version. (laughs) That name right there ought to shock you just a little bit. It was written in the 50s. Liberalism was at its height at the 50s. And this is what the RSV says in 2 Timothy 3.16. Listen very carefully. Every scripture inspired by God is profitable, also profitable for teaching. So listen closely to it one more time. Every scripture inspired by God is also profitable for teaching. That leaves the door open. Do you get it? What's the door? Some of it may not be inspired by God. So every scripture... Inspired by it. it goes back to my statement last, last week that Doctor M- Doctor Smiley said or last night. The Bible contains God's words. Now, you start down that slippery slope, and then you're picking and choosing as to what is, and you are headed in a wrong fashion. Second Peter chapter one verse twenty. Knowing that first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So what you have in Scripture is not somebody's interpretation of something that was said. It says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back to dictation for a minute. Is that saying the whole Bible was dictated? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Is that what it's say? No, somebody said it. That's correct. The entire Bible was not dictated. Men were spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when you, when you read the scriptures, so if you take the Gospels, for example, what was Matthew? You may know? He was a tax collector, and he was he was Jewish. It's very clear that comes out when 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 he when he writes. I've already told you Luke was a doctor. He explains the the detailed nature of, of what he was doing. What did Paul used to be before he was converted by God? You may know. He was a Pharisee. It comes through in what he writes. John obviously was the most creative of the gospel writers. Why? How do I know that? Just the way he wrote. The language he uses. He, he uses very creative language where Luke is more succinct and Mark's more succinct in how they speak. So what I'm saying is the personality of the writers come through, the influence that they had, but what the Scripture is affirming here, they were all brought along by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a quote at the bottom of the page. I'm sorry all this is jammed up here. Sixty-six books were written over a period of at least 1,600 years by 40 authors, yet there is one type of doctrine in the whole Bible and only one type of morality in the whole range of Scripture. Here's an illustration for you. Different horses, one rider, same destination. Different horses, that's the authors. One rider, that's God. One destination. That's where all the scripture is pointing us in one direction, to God himself, to what God is doing but God uses different methods, means, along the way as he is communicating. Page 10. All right. This is another little free part here. So some of you, when you take a New Testament class in school, you'll be able to at least say, I remember that word somewhere? Plenary inspiration means this. All of the Bible is inspired. All of it. Plenary means All. The sum of your word is truth. What is that? Sum is, what do you do? When are you doing a sum? When do you get a sum? Addition. So you add all the Bible up, and the sum of the Bible is what? Truth. That means each individual part is truth. The sum of your word is truth. Every one, see how detailed it gets? Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. See if you're paying attention last night. Why are the, why are the red, red words put in some Bibles? What were people doing? Tell me why. I did say this last night, didn't I? Tell me why. Somebody tell me. What, what, what were the people who put the red words in there in the 50s again, what were they saying? The red words are the only words that are true. true. That is not what the Bible is saying at all, which, which, which in a moment I'm going to ask a question about that and go deeper. Not only do we believe that all the words are inspired, not just the red words, we believe in verbal inspiration. That means not just the thoughts or the ideas or the overall meaning of the Scripture is true, but the words are true. Galatians 3.16, here's an example. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the the scripture right there is teaching you that one letter makes a difference. What's the letter? S. So if you add an S to offsprings and you make it plural, you're missing what the scripture was telling you when God spoke to Abraham. Who was God talking about when he said to Abraham, and to your offspring is coming the blessing. Who was he talking about? Christ. So even the words and the letters make a difference. Now, I want to bring this to some application. I know that's kind of big ideas, a little bit abstract on on how you apply this, but let's work this out. If, If only the red words are true, and this is where I challenge my liberal friends, if only the red words are true, then what did Jesus say? So let me ask it this way. Did Jesus think that the rest of the Bible wasn't true? Did Jesus think that the rest of the Bible contained error? Did Jesus say or think that only what I'm saying, only my red words coming out of my mouth is what you believe? Is that what he was is that what he believed? For Jesus, this is a quote from Kevin DeYoung's book Taking God at His Word. For Jesus, anything from scripture down to the individual words and the least heralded passages possessed unquestioned authority according to his infallible estimate. Robert Watts once remarked about Jesus, it was sufficient proof of the infallibility of any sentence or clause of a sentence or a phrase of a clause to show that it constituted a portion of what the Jews called scripture. I want you to turn to John chapter 10. Watch what Jesus does here. John chapter 10 verse 35. Did Jews believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Yes, they did. Jesus knew this. He knew this. He knew this was in their minds. Now, they're challenging him. He knows this. So in verse 34, he says, is it not written in your law, I said you were God's? Now, you've got to put that in context to really understand it, and I don't have time to do that right now. It's in Psalm 82. Go read it in context around verse 6, and you'll understand what's going on there. All right? God's not saying we're like little superheroes. That is not what it means, okay? That's not the argument. They, Jesus had said he was God, and they're about to stone him to death. He says in verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated in sin of the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now the key part, what do you think I want you to see in verses 34 and 35? we're talking about inerrancy. What do you think I want you to see there in that verse? Scripture cannot be what? Broken. Quoting to Young again, the word for "broken" means to loose, release, dismiss, or dissolve. In John ten thirty five, Luo means, carries the sense of breaking, nullifying, or invalidating. It's Jesus' way of affirming that no word of Scripture can be falsified, no promise or threat can fall short of fulfillment. No statement can be found erroneous. Just like his Jewish audience, Jesus believed Scripture was the word of God, and as such, it would be gross impiety to think that any word spoken by God or committed to writing by God might be an errant word, a wrong word, or a broken word. Let's look at two other places in Matthew where Jesus affirms this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth each pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. An iota or a dot, what do you think Jesus is getting to here? Words or something else? somebody said it, even the punctuation, because punctuation is crucial to understanding language. That's why like, your English teacher wants you to lose like, periods and commas, because they help understand what the sentence actually means when you write it. So Jesus is saying that his word is not going to pass away even to the smallest letter, the smallest part of punctuation in what you do. Now, that creates challenge when you translate it into another language. And, and that's a whole nother question, a whole nother discussion as to how that plays out. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign for you, but he answered them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but for no sign will be given except the signs of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Question. Did Jesus really believe Jonah was in the belly of a whale? Yes. This is one of the places people will go after with the Bible to say the Bible the Bible cannot be completely true. You 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 ignorant Christians, you're believing myth. So the question is, did Jesus believe the story of Jonah was a myth? He didn't. He firmly believed that Jonah was three days in the belly of the well. There are multiple other things that Jesus affirms that went on in the Old Testament, including creation. So, friends, treating the Bible as if part of it is not true or part of it wasn't, wasn't there because Jesus said it wasn't. You better pay careful attention to what Jesus said because what Jesus is doing is affirming. So I'm having a discussion with a lost friend, and it gets really heated. I wasn't trying to yell at him. He's yelling at me, okay? And hell comes into the conversation. I hadn't brought up he was going to hell. He is, but I hadn't brought it up. And he gets irate, and he said, I am so sick of you people who claim to be Christians, who say people are going to hell. Jesus didn't believe that. I said, time out. When is the last time you read the red words in your Bible?" He said, well, it's been a while. I said, all right, just chill out and read the red words and call me back tomorrow and tell me whether what you just said is true. Now, Here's a stunner. Jesus says more about two subjects than anything else. You know what those two subjects are? Hell and money. Now that ought to get our attention. That's the two things he confronts the most when you read what he says. So he's he's affirming things in scripture. By the way, the dude didn't call me back and he's never brought it up again. So maybe he did read it. I I don't know. I pray he'll be saved. I continue to do that. All right, page 12. It's the same text we looked at yesterday, John chapter 16. It's a subtly different way to say it. Believing the Bible is totally true requires the essential ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I believe about my lost friend. I believe he'd read the Bible because he said he had. I believe he missed that hell was there. You ever done that? You ever read through the Bible and just totally missed that something was there? And then later on, somebody's teaching it or you're reading it and you go, what? How did you see that? How did you see it? Do you know? It's the Holy Spirit. He revealed it to you. In John chapter 16, verse 13, it says, When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you. I had you circle that three times last night. He will declare. The New American Standard, anybody read the New American Standard in here? I like the word it uses. Anybody read one? It says disclose. He will disclose this to you. He, he will make it aware. J.I. Packer says this, the illumination. That's another word for disclose. The illumination of the Spirit, witnessing to the, the divinity of the Bible, is a universal Christian experience and has been so from the beginning. Though many Christians have not known how to verbalize it, argument, testimony from others, and our own particular experiences may prepare us to receive the witness, but the imparting of it, like the imparting of faith in Christ's divine saviorhood, is the prerogative of the sovereign Holy Spirit alone. In other words, no one in this room has ever understood anything God has said apart from the Holy Spirit. Nobody. Nobody in this room has understand what God has said because of some convincing preacher or someone who argued with you for hours. You got to be really careful with that, friend, how you're discussing the Bible with people. You bring the word to bear, and you trust the Spirit of God to share it and to dis- to disclose it to people. Now, four principles, and I'm going to be done. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Believing the Bible is totally true is necessary for salvation. Now, I'm going to go to Psalm 19. I want to show you, and then I want to explain myself here so that you don't misunderstand me. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Doing what? When you get there, the law of the Lord is perfect. Doing what? What does it do? Reviving the soul. The testimony of the the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, what? Next one, enlightening the eyes. Question. How many of you who are Christians believed an articulate understanding of the inerrancy of Scripture before you became a Christian? Anybody? Most of you probably never thought about inerrancy till tonight, okay? So that is not what I'm saying. That somebody had to have a teaching on inerrancy that the Bible is totally without error for before they could ever be saved. Here's what I'm saying. Now track with me here. What I'm saying is you had to totally believe the testimony of the gospel that you heard to be saved. In other words, if somebody shared the gospel and you said, well, I believe half that. It goes like this at college. Why well, believe Jesus is a historical figure? I do. Is that salvation? No, it is not. It is the belief and the testimony of what the scripture teaches that not only is Christ a historical figure, not only did he die on a cross, not only did he rise again, it's why he did those things and what he accomplished on the cross and through the power of the resurrection that we believe as the testimony of scripture as totally true that results in salvation. And we don't believe those things apart from the word of God. It is the word of God that reveals those things. It is the word of God through the spirit of God that revises our soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices our heart when we see it and it enlightens our eyes. Second principle, believing the Bible is totally true, prompts holy desire. Now let's think about this in the reverse. If I believe the Bible contains error, am I gonna base my life on it? Am I? No, why would I? Why would I base my life on something that's full of error? Because here's what I here's what my study of the scripture then becomes. I'm trying to figure out which part's true and what's not true. Which part do I base on, which part do I not, not, not base on? But when I when I come to understand the faithfulness of the scripture that it's totally true, what it prompts in me is a holy desire. It's in it's uh, verse nine, Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So this is a desire that comes up within us, a holy desire, seeing this is right. This is what God has given to us, this enduring, clean, pure word that informs our life. And it creates a desire in it. Second, third thing, believing the Bible is totally true shapes the way I study and proclaim the scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. So Paul, I just want, I just want to sit on you for a second. Think about this. Ephesus, total pagan. No Christians. Paul shows up, preaches the gospel. People believe a church is formed. He establishes a church. Leaders are there. We're we're about two years into this deal, and Paul says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Here is his final instructions to the leaders of the church. I'm just going to give you two verses. Verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Now, if you read that and you say, okay, well, that means, you know, Paul just kind of worked through the Bible and picked and choose things and said, you know, this, this little passage right here, this would be good. You ever been asked to do a devotion? You know, and you just kind of flipped through your Bible and went, eh, you know. This might be good. This might be good. That's not what Paul did. Paul didn't go to Ephesus and say, you know, I think I'll just go over here and I'll go over here. So I didn't shrink to give anything profitable. Well, here's how he did it. Verse 27. Here's the answer. And this is what he tells them to do. Verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you what? The whole counsel of God. So here's what Paul's saying. I didn't treat the Bible like the big buffet up on the beach. You know, the $29.99 buffet, 80 items. You just go in here and pick and choose what you want. This part's good. This part's not good. He said, no, I laid out for you a full course meal, all of it. The whole counsel of God. So that means, that means this. What I need, what you need is what we call exposition or explanation of the entire Bible. The Bible must exposit me the bible's got to explain me explain god to me it's got to define who i am and what my need is so the bible has got to speak to me so i have to bring the word of god to bear on my own life the bible then must exposit the church it amazes me it amazes me how many of you have been to a church where the pastor got up and taught and never opened the bible you ever been to one? You ever, you ever like you know been to a youth meeting or something, and, and the dude hollered and screamed and slung it around like that, but he never opened it? What good was that to you? What was it? What good was that? It might have been creative. It might have been funny. You might have enjoyed it, but it didn't do anything for you. <laughs> Sorry to pick on him, but but it's really not funny. It's really sad. But have you ever watched Joel Osteen and what he does at the beginning? Y'all ever watch this? Y'all don't know what I'm talking about? So he gets up and he holds his Bible up and they do this whole litany about how they believe this is the truth and this is God's word and we're going to believe it and all that and then he lays it down and he never (laughs) opens it again. He does this week after week. Anyway, sad. All right. He's not the only one that does it. So the Bible's got to exposit you. It's got to exposit the church. Listen, the Bible's got to exposit the culture. The reason, pause there. One of the reasons the culture is diving, one of the reasons your friends are in a nosedive of sin is because nobody's speaking the whole counsel of God anymore. You and other Christians are scared to death to say what God has said. And listen, we, because of that, are having an adverse effect on the rest of the world. Now, this is really getting to why I'm teaching this. If we don't return, if we don't return to a firm belief in the Bible, number one, the church is going to die. She's going to wither away in the West. Now, the church won't wither away everywhere. God's promised that wouldn't, but it's going to wither away. Secondly, the culture is going to be destroyed. Friends, we are crucial to what's happening. So here's my question to you that I want you to ask yourself. And I think this is hilarious that I'm teaching on inerrancy. And there's an error in this question. Do I believe that the blibble is totally true and without error? I want you to turn to Jude. Jude is right before Revelation. One, it's just two pages, probably one in your Bible. Jude verse three, they're not chapters. Jude verse three. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. So who's he writing to? Who's Jude writing to? Huh? Christians. Christians. He's writing to Christians. So I'm I'm, I'm appealing right now. Not everybody in this room is Christians. It's pretty obvious to me. right? Not everybody in this room is Christians. This is an appeal to the believer. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Young men and women, if you really believe that the Bible is totally true and without error, then here's what you're going to do: you're going to contend for the faith that is once and for all handed down to the saints. You're going to contend for that. Doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you're going to fight like the world fights. It means it means that you're not going to turn tail and run when the culture stands up against it that you're not going to turn tail and run when your sweet mates in college or your friends at school, your Christian friends, begin to negate the Scripture, that you are going to contend. You're going to stand up and say, this is what God has said here. Now, here's what I believe. I believe this strongly, not just about you. I believe it about your mom and dad. I believe it about older adults. I believe this to the core of who I am. One of the reasons we're abandoning inerrancy is because we're scared. And we know what it's going to cost us if we stand up and say, this is what God has said. This is God's word. And this must be proclaimed. It must be told to people. I don't have time to get into all my story. I, I, I left Wake Forest, not because of Dr. Smiley. Uh, I ended up, I, I was called to a church to serve, and I transferred to a small Lutheran school called Lenore Rine College. And our senior year, um, my senior year, Celeste was a sophomore, our senior year, a group of us got together to form an inter-varsity chapter. There wasn't a solid Christian organization on campus. And we went away to a retreat. And I don't know whether InterVarsity formed or not, but it didn't form with Celeste and I. Because because when we formed to write the charter and to what this InterVarsity chapter would stand for, half of the group, over half of the group, refused to say that we believed that the Bible was God's word. And it was a tense moment. And uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm a preacher boy. This is why you need the church. This is why you need faithful Christian friends. Celeste, you probably forgot this. Conversation was going on. And Celeste went. I was quiet. She punched me in my side. And I stood up. And what it meant from that moment was the group was done with us. They were done. Christian friends, done. Now friends, it will cost you something to contend for the faith. So the real question is, do I believe the Bible is totally true? and without error here's what was interesting to me this morning most of the questions that happened in the discussion this morning really had to do with how you deal with your friends who don't believe it I should have saw that coming better what does it mean to contend for the faith Uh, that and other discussions and there may be questions about this I'm going to continue now the, the good thing is don't you love this camp they let you sleep whoever went to a summer camp just lets you sleep well tomorrow breakfast is not till 10 o'clock praise god look at that so coffee and discussion for those who are interested will be at nine o'clock tomorrow praise the lord full high test coffee will be served and uh discussion will continue for those of you who are interested and uh you know what i believe believe this because of the world that I live in. I believe in this room are Luther's and Calvin's. I believe in this room, they're Anne Bradstreet's. Find out who she is. I believe they're in this room. You know why? Because the world you live in is going to require it. It's going to require a stand for the faith in what you believe like people have not seen in a long time. And I believe that God has put you in moments like this one to get you ready for what is coming in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for these young men and women and trust them into your hands. Your word, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, has penetrated to the very depths of who we are. And I can tell by the look on faces, some people just like to jump up out of here and run. Others are scared. Some don't know what to do. And yet, God, some don't care. Spirit of God, I pray that you would invade all of our hearts, speak into all of our lives, and call us to yourself. Prepare us as you promised that you would. And we trust that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Your word is truth. And we stake our lives on it. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.